0: think that one of the ways that women can really improve their own experience um, is to be good communicators themselves meaning if you're not understanding what the doctor is telling you or you're not getting the reasoning speak up say hey i don't understand or can you repeat that or can i ask you a follow-up question or can we discuss this further if there's no more time in your appointment can i set up a time to speak later on a different day and a different hour whatever it might be because The doctors, we want everyone to understand. We want everyone to be on the same page. And sometimes we don't even know that what we said went over somebody's head or we said it in a way that was just totally incoherent.
1: Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthday Podcast. The Jewish weekly day of rest, Shabbos, is so precious and sacred. However, many women find it challenging to refrain from applying makeup on this festive day and some are even hesitant to leave the house. Enter Seventh Day Shine, a revolutionary skincare and makeup line that can be applied on Shabbos while keeping halacha. Their foundation, blush, bronzer, eyeshadow, and eyeliner and lip powders come in a huge array of colors, and their application brushes are so luxurious. My favorite product is Luminosity, an intensely hydrating and refreshingly scented serum that's especially formulated for permissible application on Chavez. Check out their full line on seventhdayshine.com. That's the number 7 THD. D A Y S H I N E dot com and enter Birthway 10 for 10% off your purchase. Find the link in the episode show notes. It takes time and practice to master the skill of the newborn swaddle. So here's my hack. Go to elliesandco.com. Among their full line of gorgeous, high-quality baby bedding and lay assets, you will find adjustable swaddle blankets that take out all the guesswork. With a pocket for baby's legs and adjustable wings with secure closures, your baby's swaddle will be perfect every time. Go to elliesandco.com. That's E-L-Y-S-A-N-D-C-O.com and enter BW10 for 10% off your purchase. Link in the episode show notes. Welcome to another episode of the Happy Birthway podcast. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Nathan Fox. He is an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist. He is a clinical professor at Mount Sinai and a managing partner at MFM Associates and Carnegie Imaging for Women in New York City. Dr. Nady is also the creator and host of the Healthful Woman podcast and the High Risk Birth Stories podcast. He is from Chicago and lives in Inglewood. When not practicing medicine, you can find Nady running, swimming, practicing hot vinyasa yoga, or embarrassing his wife and four children, or most likely walking the dogs. Welcome, Dr. Fox, to the show. It is such an honor to have you here. Thank you, Shani. I appreciate you having me on your podcast. I found you through somebody, actually, that followed me on Instagram, tipping me off and telling me, oh, you have to listen to the Healthful Woman podcast. It's so great. And the first episode I listened to was about fasting when pregnant, and it was amazing. You're doing great work just bringing so much education straight from the mouth of a maternal fetal medicine doctor who is a high risk OBGYN. We know that it's credible information and I wish I had these things back in the day when I was having my first kids. And although you cannot be everybody's doctor and provider, um, you sound like a phenomenal one on the podcast and you're making such a difference in so many people's lives that you don't even come in contact with. So Today, I wanted to interview you about what it is, the qualities that you think make a good provider. It's really hard to determine that just for a layperson that has zero medical experience whatsoever. And then, even for us as healthcare providers, when we're looking for a doctor in a different discipline, it's even hard for us to kind of figure out and determine. What makes a competent provider? I don't know if I should be using the word good or best, because everyone has individual needs, personalities, and preferences. I want to hear what it is that you think makes a great provider.
0: Honey, that's a great question. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with. How do I find, uh, let's say it's a doctor who's good, but this is true, you know, anyone who's providing care how do I find a good dentist? How do I find a good plumber? How do I find a good contractor? How do I get a good car dealer? Like, whatever it is. And, you know, nowadays, there are so many people out there doing this and everyone's got, you know, these reviews online and you can Google and find things about people and you can see pictures of them and you can read about them and see where they practice. And you can maybe do some, you know, uh, searching. Does anyone know this person? But ultimately, You have no idea if the person's any good or not. And it's not unique to um, uh, people who are not in the medical field trying to find doctors. I can tell you that I personally, when I'm looking for a doctor myself or for a loved one, I have no idea. And it's very hard to find out. And what you said before about not being, you know, the word is good, right? Because good is a very vague term. And it's almost like if you're thinking about, like, like someone to date or someone to marry. It's not like, you know, if you're not a right match for the person, they're not a good person. It's just not right for you. And the same thing is true. I believe in medicine when searching for a doctor, it's not just about like who is the best there. There isn't a concept of the best typically in medicine. Uh, There are rare exceptions with this uh, and I can, you know, mention them, but essentially you have to find a good fit for you as a person who is the person i'm going to be seeing for my medical care so a lot of goes into that is number one what do you need so for example let's say you know i had an injury to my hand and i'm worried about my you know my index finger not working you know from this injury and i need to work and i work with my hands and i need the best hand surgeon on the face of the earth, right? That's what I need. I don't care if that person's kind, or if that person talks to me, or if it's hard to get an appointment, or if they take my insurance, or because this is like gonna change my entire career. And I'm just gonna say, I need the person who has the best technical skills to you know sew my finger back on, and so I can use it and I can operate with it one day, fine. But that's very, very specific. If I'm looking for someone, let's say I just got diagnosed, Uh, not me personally but hypothetically i just got diagnosed with diabetes i need an endocrinologist okay we're talking about a lifelong relationship here this is someone i'm going to see you know regularly literally for the rest of my life or until that person retires and so it's not just about who is the world-class smartest person in diabetes i probably don't need that person i probably just need anybody who knows something about diabetes any endocrinologist knows about diabetes that's what they do they all know about it so I don't need to find, you know, the, you know, the top professor in the top university to see me. I need someone who's accessible. I need someone who's relatable. I need someone who I can understand. I need somebody who I trust. I need somebody who listens to me, right? Those are very, very different. And so I think the first thing people need to think about when looking for a doctor is what am I looking for? Is this someone who I'm going to see once? Is it for a specific? you know, problem that I'm only gonna be treated once or a specific procedure, is this gonna be a longer term relationship? And then all the other factors that come into play, you know, does it matter to me where they are, how much is gonna cost me in terms of insurance or not? Uh, for like OBGYN, does it matter if the person's uh, a woman or a man to me? For some people it matters, for some people it doesn't. And all those things start coming into play and that's before you meet the person, right? That's just like in advance trying to set it up. Once you meet the person, I think a lot of it is really just personality. I mean, if you went and had coffee with somebody, how do you decide if you're gonna be friends with that person? There isn't like a, a rule for what to do. You can't list the 10 things. You get a sense, like this is a person I click with. This is a person I get along with. This is a person I like. This is a person I trust. This is a person who I find interesting. And it's really true with doctors as well. It doesn't take that long to figure out if this is somebody that i think is a good person somebody who i either trust immediately or i think i would trust with time and if not that's something to really reconsider
1: yeah great insight some doctors are phenomenal doctors but maybe their bedside manner is not so mushy-gushy you know they're not sitting there holding the patient's hand and validating everything. And then I see the other end of the spectrum where some doctors kind of are so empathetic and compassionate that sometimes it clouds a little bit their medical judgment. You know, maybe they'll induce a little sooner than is recommended or whatnot. So how significant is the piece of a doctor listening to their patient and spending that time with their patient to hear all the sides of their situation, not just the health parts of it, but the whole entire social emotional part of it, and their experiences and preferences and all of those things. Yeah, I think there isn't,
0: you know, one broad stroke for this, I would say, at least in my field, and related to, you know, women's health and pregnancy, and fertility, I think for the vast majority of women, it's a huge component of it, if not the most critical component of it. I think it's unusual to run into, you know, an OBGYN or a midwife who's, you know, an idiot, like doesn't know what to do, doesn't know anything about anything is like a horrible doctor. I just, you know, I guess they exist, but I think that's not really what we're talking about. I think that's not so usual. And I think for most people, the part that really matters is, does this person listen to me? Do, you know, do they know what I want? Do they care about me? Are they going to go the extra mile for me? Are they going to, you know, give me advice? Um, no different than they would give to a family or friends like that. They actually care about me. Obviously there are situations where you need a a specific question answered or a specific thing done. You know, sometimes someone comes to me for, you know, uh, a second opinion on an ultrasound and they really first need something very technical. Like, do I agree with what, this other doctor saw on the baby. And in that case, yeah, does it matter if I'm kind or listening to them so much for the technical aspect of making the diagnosis or not? No, it doesn't matter as much. Would it be nice if I was a nice person? Of course it would be nice, but it wouldn't matter that much in that regard. However, if let's say the diagnosis is known and it's not a second opinion of, you know, what is going on with the baby, but a second opinion of what does this mean? What should we do? How should I move forward? Then you really do need that component because so much of that is based on how do I communicate? How do I listen? How do I answer people's questions? How do I understand what they're asking? How do I discuss it in a way that they can both digest and understand? And if they don't, how would I address that? How would I bring them back versus me getting frustrated at them, right? Then it becomes a massive component, if not the only component that matters and so, again, that's a very long-winded answer to a, a short question, but I think that it's really does depend on the situation. I think the majority of the time it's critical. You can find exceptions to that, um, but ultimately it's such an important part of what we do every day. And uh, it really, I think, does differentiate for patients um, which doctor's taking you know better care of them.
1: Yeah, lots of good information over there. I do agree about that communication part. I mean, I want to emphasize what you said about the communication part, you know, both on the provider side and on the patient side, just setting up those expectations and helping with the shared decision-making process of making a patient feel like they're participating in their plan of care, not just kind of telling them what to do, right, but telling them all the different angles and how things can can go. Um, Yeah, I love that. And, you know, these days, most people can't just choose one provider that they can guarantee will be there at their birth throughout the entire thing. Most, most groups today are a group practice of you know several doctors, as big as seven, eight doctors. I work with one group like that. And I think that they all have different personalities. A lot of times someone meshes with one particular doctor, yet there's no guarantee that they're gonna be at the delivery. In your experience, do you feel like Groups tend to have the same philosophies. Do you see very varying philosophies on birth? Because, I mean, there's no black and white with birth. There's so many ways that someone can be treated, whether it's expected management, where we just kind of watch and wait, or more active management of a labor, where we kind of, you know, just apply more interventions. What's been your experience when it comes to group practices? Well, I'm I'm
0: very fortunate that uh, my group practice that I work in has, um, we're pretty cohesive as a group. And I think that, again, I'm very fortunate that I work with amazing doctors, both maternal fetal medicine specialists, as well as obstetricians and gynecologists, meaning we're not all MFMs, we're sort of multi-specialty. And I think that, you know, group models have the potential to add tremendous value to patient care, uh, but they do have the potential to um, detract. And I think when they add to patient care and make it better is number one, when you have multiple people thinking about you, it's less likely that something's going to get not missed in a sense, but y- you have more people's expertise, right? So example, if I have a lot of expertise in one subject and my partner has expertise in another subject, you know, no one knows everything about everything. And so you really get the added benefit of everyone thinking about you rather than one person. I think also that you get the opportunity to experience, you know, again, we're talking about pregnancy or your pregnancy or birth with different types of personalities, and you'll sort of see what clicks with you and what doesn't. I think it begins to detract if the the doctors who work together are really not on the same page with how how they practice. And I don't mean like flavors like you're talking about, I mean like different menus entirely. And that is a problem. And so it, it, you know, one of the ways to know if a group is functioning well versus dysfunction is if every single person tells you a different plan, right? One person says, we're gonna do you 39 weeks. Another person says, we're gonna let you go to 42 weeks. Another person says, we're doing a C-section at 37 weeks. And someone else says, I have no idea what we're doing. That's a bad situation because they're not on the same page. But a well-functioning group will decide amongst themselves, what do we all think together is the best plan for this particular woman? And let's tell her that plan, like either as a group or one of us will convey it to her, but the rest of us will sign off on it. And that's really when you get the best of both worlds. The reason there aren't a lot of individual doctors anymore, it's just too hard for one person to do this, you know, the, the to be up 24 hours and then see patients all day in the office, I could do it, right? and then be on call the next night, I'll get through it, but I'm not gonna be functioning at my best. And who wants me taking care of them when I've been up for 48 hours and I'm smoked and I'm maybe making bad decisions, or maybe, you know, you don't want that from me. And if you're practicing alone, there's no way to avoid that. And the people who do it well are really, really good at time management. They don't take on too many patients. They know the limits on their volume. They have backup systems in place, but it's hard to pull that off. And so most people function in groups. I think what you said before, though, is so critical about communication. It would be wonderful if every doctor was the perfect communicator and did everything exactly right, but we're human. We fail all the time. We don't meet expectations all the time, like all humans in our lives. Nobody is perfect. And I think that one of the ways that women can really improve their own experience um, is to be good communicators themselves. Meaning if you're not understanding what the doctor is telling you, or you're not getting the reasoning, speak up, say, Hey, I don't understand. Or can you repeat that? Or can I ask you a follow-up question? Or can we discuss this further? If there's no more time in your appointment, can I set up a time to speak later on a different day and a different hour, whatever it might be? Because, The doctors, we want everyone to understand. We want everyone to be on the same page. And sometimes we don't even know that what we said went over somebody's head or we said it in a way that was just totally incoherent. And we don't always know when we fail. And when someone tells us, again, not in a combative way, but just like you would in any conversation with a friend or a family member or a colleague, hey, like, I need you to explain that to me again. I didn't get it. Um, That's really when the relationship becomes two way and much more productive um for everybody and more pleasurable in that
1: sense. Yeah, I love that. And when a doctor actually respects a patient that asks the questions and gives them the time to really understand what it is that they're asking and to comprehensively answer their questions, I think that is really a very strong sign of a good provider, quote unquote good. But someone who really is competent and is aiming to give the best patient care. And you know, going back to the group practice I think that you're, you're so right, because like you said, doctors are human, even though I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> um, you guys work so much. It's hard if you were up all day for 24 hours and then to have to go back and attend a delivery. And um, there are other benefits, actually. The California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, they do research on different maternal quality care measures. And they've actually seen that when there are groups that practice and they hand off shifts, the C-section rate has been lower, and um, other areas have been improved just because the provider tends to have a little bit more tolerance because they're they're feeling good. They're coming in on a shift feeling fresh, and they haven't been in the hospital for 48 hours already. So I think that there are some great benefits to group practices, even though some people wish that they could just have that one provider the entire time. As someone who is in a group practice yourself, What do you think about whether a patient should see one provider frequently and not really get to know the other providers? Or do you think that it's better for someone to, you know, really vary their each provider that they see at every visit?
0: Yeah, in our practice, uh, what I tell women is they can do whichever they prefer. And I think it really is a preference for some people, it is critical that they have a pre-existing relationship with the person who delivers them and they say you know what if i show up in labor and someone comes who i don't really know and i haven't met that's going to be very anxiety provoking for me i'm not going to be you know comfortable or calm and for those women i say listen you really should then meet everybody make sure here's a list of doctors who deliver make sure to make an appointment at least once with each one of them if there's someone who you clicked with immediately you're good to go if there's someone who you weren't so sure make another appointment you know, just so you can sort of work that out and figure it out. And for other women, it's the opposite of like, well, I don't really care delivers me. But, you know, when I'm having my prenatal care, I want to see the same person. I want to ask the same questions to the same person and get the same answers. And I don't know which is better. I mean, different people feel differently about this. I mean, there are models of delivery care that are set up in this country and certainly around the world, like in Israel, where you'll never meet the person who's gonna deliver you. You see people for prenatal care, and then you go to the hospital, and there's either a midwife or a hospitalist, as they're called, and they do the deliveries. And some people believe those are better models from a safety perspective. They believe that it's better for the doctor to be a little detached from the patient. I'm not saying that that's necessarily correct, but there are people who not only have that model, but believe in that model. And so it's done. And again, for some women in our practice, they're fine with not knowing the person delivering them and others they really don't want that they want to know the person who's delivering them so i think it's best to have the option for both and let people decide for themselves how they want to navigate um you know the the group practice the dynamic in that sense
1: yeah i want to ask you what the latest transfer you had of a patient that came from a different provider different group to your group because like you said, there are so many great providers, and I want to always emphasize that, but unfortunately, sometimes someone doesn't mesh with a provider for whatever reason. So I do want to encourage listeners that if they really in their gut feel like something is not the best that it could be in terms of their care, you know, people have messaged me even at like 37, 38 weeks with serious concerns, and I never tell anyone what to do, but they are kind of, you know wanting some kind of affirmation or something of being able to find a new provider so i'm just curious to know what the latest um, time in someone's pregnancy you've had transferred
0: since we're a high-risk practice i mean 50 percent of the people who come in are transferring but it's not because oh i didn't like my doctor it's because oh you know i got you know i got either upgraded or downgraded based on how you look at it on your on your flights you know I either went from yeah, i went from coach to business or business to coach so
1: do you guys only do high risk or do you accept uncomplicated and high risk we don't turn anyone
0: away because they're too high risk or too low risk we'll see anybody but a lot of people do end up coming to us from let's say they they it's their first pregnancy or they had a delivery with somebody else but now they're pregnant with twins or now they have diabetes or now they have high blood pressure or now, you know, whatever, something has come up and either they themselves have decided they want to sort of go to a a different, you know, practice that has more of a high risk feel to it with maternal fetal medicine specialists and ultrasound, all these things, or their doctor said, hey, you know, can you take her? Can you take care of her? She's really above my skill level. Uh, And so that happens as well. We do have people who transfer, like you said, just for sort of either a personality issue or a management issue, not specifically for a higher level of care in terms of like acuity, but more just maybe a different vibe. Um, I'm sure there's people who leave us for the same reason. I mean, it's not, again, it doesn't mean because we're better than others. It's just, you know, we we have our personality and our vibe and the way we do things. And for the people who are sort of not pleased with what they're getting and ours is better, they'll come to us. And for people who come to us and say, this is not for me and they go elsewhere, Again, that's fine. Like we're we're not, you know, we don't, we're not used car salesmen. We're not scrapping and clawing to keep people and making deals. If, if we're not the right, if we're not your cup of tea, you should go somewhere else where you're comfortable. We want you to have a, a happy, healthy, safe delivery. And if we're not the ones to provide that for you, okay, like that's fine. Um, and we're, you know, we're happy to do that. In terms of the latest in pregnancy, you know, in a situation that wasn't like, I need you to take over because she's like definitely ill. Like, please help us. Um, I would say it's usually something like someone's like 35, 36, 37, 38 weeks. And they learn for the first time that their doctor is not going to allow a vaginal delivery for them, whereas we would. Uh, so for example, like let's say uh, it's a twin pregnancy and we we're we do a lot of vaginal delivery of twins uh, because you know, we have a lot of experience with twins and let's say their doctor is not comfortable doing a vaginal delivery of twins and listen if that's a situation the doctor shouldn't be doing the vaginal delivery of twins if they're not comfortable doing it they shouldn't do it and but for whatever reason it wasn't communicated to the patient or it was communicated but she didn't realize and so now she's like wait a second you mean i need a c-section but these guys would might deliver vaginally and so they switched to us uh, sometimes with VBACs, with prior cesareans uh different doctors have different levels of comfort of this and things like that those would be the reasons someone transfer late. But we generally, um, we screen those situations because we don't want someone switching into a situation where we also wouldn't you know, do a vaginal delivery and then they're not getting what they expected. Um, and also just to make sure, because sometimes when people switch at the end, it's very difficult for them logistically, they don't know the doctor. So we, we make sure it's, it's a good match, so to speak. Uh, but those would be the reasons someone would come, I would say, pretty late in pregnancy.
1: Yeah. And I have to mention that you brought up a great point where you're a high-risk OBGYN. And sometimes people just have this assumption that high-risk OBGYNs will intervene a lot more and be a lot more aggressive with interventions. But sometimes because you guys have so much experience in something, you're kind of more conservative and laid back about it because your knowledge base is higher, your skills may be more sharpened because you have so much experience with this. So let's say with a VBAC or vaginal twins or be it what it may be, I think that it's good for people to know that, right? Yeah,
0: what's well, interesting the the VBAC and the vaginal delivery of twins is actually not because I'm more high-risk doctors because when I did my uh, training in, you know, quote-unquote high-risk OB, maternal fetal medicine, none of it is labor and delivery. It's really ultrasound research, complicated pregnancies. You know, diabetes, hypertension, lupus, cancer. You know, it's more like on the medical side and the research and the ultrasound. In terms of like VBAC and um, uh, and twins, that's just because we we have a large practice and we have you know we take care of women who have those and we're comfortable doing that. So it's not always the difference between let's say an OBGYN and an MFM. But what you said is true in a sense that since we take care of a lot of high risk women we tend not to worry so much about the small stuff. I was on a podcast with um, uh, uh, a couple of doulas from out West who are amazing. And they found it so interesting that you know, since I'm a high risk doctor, you would think I would be like crazy about everything. Oh, you can't do this. You can't do this. It's going to do this. It's going to this. actually tends to be the opposite because we sort of know what the real problems are. Like, 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 listen, you don't have like cancer, like you're good, you know? And so it was like, whether you have a Diet Coke or not is not going to really, you know, get me all worked up it because it's, it's really not the, 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 the big picture. It's a very small detail. And so sometimes, you know, that's one of the big jokes that I'm like the most like, like lenient obstetrician out there, you know, I'm the one to let you eat sushi. I'm the one who lets you fast. I'm the one who lets you exercise. And again, because we have training as sort of one of the things that really cause problems in pregnancy. And so we don't focus much on the things that don't actually cause problems in pregnancy, but just, you know, we used to drive people crazy.
1: Yeah, you don't sweat the small stuff. Um, Yeah, and it's super, super important. That's been like that my experience when I worked in a more high risk hospital as well. And I want to also just bring up that when someone's choosing a provider, they're also going to consider the hospital that they're giving birth in. And like you said, like with the VBAC, we want to make sure that they're the specific resources that the hospital needs to have in order to enable a patient to have a VBAC. So some hospitals just don't have those resources, so they cannot provide that to a patient.
0: Oh, huge. Yeah, huge. Yeah. We talked about that on our VBAC podcast that it's not just the doctor it's, you need, it's, it's the hospital, the resources and the culture. Some hospitals have a culture that are very in favor of VBACs and some hospitals have a culture that are very not in favor of VBACs and that culture permeates into how things are done and how things are, said to patients and what kind of attitudes there are. And, you know, if everyone in, in the labor floor thinks it's a bad idea for someone to VBAC, even if I walk on there as the doctor and I'm pro, it's gonna it's gonna be hard because the nurses are gonna give different messaging. You know, the other doctors are gonna give different messaging. It's gonna be a whole disaster uh, in terms of the patient's experience. And those things are good to ask your doctor about, hey, what's the culture on your labor floor for these things? And the doctors say, oh, no, it's great. We do it all the time versus, oh, my God, it's such a struggle. Every time we're fighting with the nurses, that's not a great situation to be in if you're trying to VBAC, for example. Yeah,
1: those are great questions. Excellent. And, you know, I, I like to say when you need when you're looking for something from a provider like a VBAC, not just does my doctor allow a VBAC, but does my doctor support a VBAC? Dr. Fox, Dr. Nady, as you call yourself, thank you so much for joining me here. I did really want to ask you this, but we'll have to do it for another episode, like how you approach when a patient is insistent on something and in your opinion, you find that that's not safe. we do have to go now our time is short but just you know oh, thank god all right keep, keep that topic mull that topic over in your head so that when you have a good answer for me you know you'll let me know we'll, we'll do another interview and for our audience here if you'd like to listen to dr fox's amazing two podcasts he has one is healthful woman podcast which gives education information on all topics related to women's health and then the high risk birth stories podcast which is a phenomenal podcast with women telling their birth stories and different high-risk conditions um i love it it's so interesting thank you again dr fox
0: thank you fanny it was great i'm sure we will speak many times in the future i appreciate you having me on your podcast good luck with the new podcast it's great i love what you're doing and i just wish you all the best of luck moving forward with it because it's important what you're doing
1: Thanks for tuning into the Happy Birthday Podcast. Head over to Academy on Instagram to continue the conversation. You'll find the link in the episode show notes, as well as links to any additional resources, products, and services mentioned here. If you love listening to this show, you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it. To stay in the loop when new episodes are released, make sure to subscribe. Remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice. The podcast is not a replacement and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience.